Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined tonight by my co-host, Matt DeBear. Matt, the regular season, it, it is over, and we have a 10-2 Penn State football team. Yeah, it, uh, it was, and we'll talk about this. It was very much a, a Penn State Rutgers Saturday <laughs> after Thanksgiving kind of performance in a, in a lot of ways. It was hardly the most glamorous game that we have seen the Nittany Lions play. Uh, Penn State 27, Rutgers 6, Nittany Lions jumped to 10-2 and two in uh, on its regular season, 7-2 and two in conference play. Will Levis got the start at quarterback. A uh, bit of a rough day throwing the football, 8 for 14, 81 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Uh, 108 yards on the ground, Journey Brown 103 yards, three scores. Uh, defense, Micah Parsons picked up a whole lot of tackles. It'll be a game that I don't think the defense is uh, going to want to remember, but it was it's still a win, a uh, way to send out the seniors with a victory, third time in four years, that Penn State will end the season undefeated at uh, at Beaver Stadium. But Matt, let's talk about this game a little bit. I want to break it down into first half and second half. Um, Nittany Lions go into the locker room. Uh, we were all expecting them to come out following last week's game and just blow Rutgers out. Ends up being 7-3 to three at the half. Before we get into any of that, the big thing from this game was Will Levis getting the start under center. Did it go basically how you expected it to go with Levis, uh, you know, being in for Sean Clifford, who was out with an undisclosed injury? Um, yes and no. I think the fact that we saw Levis with 17 carries over 100 yards, we could kind of judge from what he did against Ohio State and what worked versus what didn't, that um, his legs are, are just naturally a bigger weapon than Sean Clifford. I think he's a little bit more comfortable running that, that read option look, um, just I'm guessing if you were to go back and check some high school film, it's just something that he's done more of. Um, I thought he'd have more success throwing the ball, um, just more by virtue of who they were up against rather than um, anything that we had seen against Ohio State, for example. But, um, you know, he, he struggled with the deep ball, which was surprising given all the talk we've heard about how big his arm is. Um, James Franklin talked a little bit after the game that he thought he was probably a little too amped up, um, which is certainly understandable for a guy making his first start. Um, um, it was, it, it went very much, like I said, kind of how you thought it would. And, but at the same time, not, um, it just, as a whole, it looked like a very lethargic, um, bunch of Penn state players. It looked like a team that knew they were, significantly more talented than Rutgers and were capable of turning it on and off and kind of sleepwalking through the game for a win. Um, you know, the atmosphere in the stadium, you know, that's generously speaking, we'll say was 70% full. Um, just, it, it had a, it was just a weird game given the, 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 fact that Levis is starting, that Gross Manos isn't playing. Um, we'll talk about it here in a little bit the number of young guys that got run, especially early on. It reminded me a lot of some of the early season games in that regard. Um, just a, a weird game that um, there are certainly things you can take from it, but I don't. I think we need to be careful not to get too caught up in in specific performances and, and things along those lines. Right. It's not something where uh, I think this is the kind of game 
You know, I'll kind of tweet. There's one somewhat big, big-ish uh, thing I think we could take away, uh, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, for me, with Levis, I think we got a really good look at why he's the backup. Uh, the backup quarterback is always the most popular guy on campus. We saw it every game that Trace McSorley played where uh, Tommy Stevens suited up. We saw it a lot last year with Stevens. Uh, with McSorley and Stevens, especially when it was pretty obvious that uh, Trace wasn't totally right, just something seemed a bit off about him. Uh, with Levis, he showed a lot. He showed a lot of good stuff. I mean, he's a really big, really physical runner. Uh, that touchdown pass that he threw to Jahan Dotson looked real, real pretty. But he has his flaws. He's sometimes a little bit too eager to just try and lower his shoulder and bowl over a dude while running it. Uh, he lacks a ton of polish as a quarterback. Uh, he doesn't have uh, his pocket presence can certainly get better. His knowing when to put that little bit extra on the ball, take that little bit extra off the ball, uh, when to lead as a receiver, that kind of stuff. It's all a work in progress, which that's fine for a backup quarterback. It's especially fine for going against uh, a team like Rutgers that you know you're you're going to beat barring. Uh, a total all-out catastrophe, which they uh, were able to avoid for most of the game. But like we mentioned, he heading into the half, uh, Matt, you mentioned that you basically thought it was because Penn State just looked like it was stuck in first gear all game. Uh, anything anything you want to expand on that? Any other things that you thought it just seemed like was a little bit off during the first half hour where, again, Penn State went to the half uh, of 7-3? Well, I just thought it was a team that, um, and Bill is something you mentioned right before we, we went on the air, so to speak, is kind of the Ohio State hangover that we've seen the last couple of years. And I think there probably is something to that. Um, yeah, I think we talked about it out of last week's game that that was the fifth ranked opponent Penn State had faced in a six game run, which, um, if my memory is right, is the first time that it ever happened in the uh, AP poll era, which goes back to like 1930 something. Um, so it, it stands to reason that they're, you're going to have a letdown just based on who you played the week before. Um, and even just that run of six games that you had, the emotional toll that that, that run from early October through mid November takes. Um, and then you, you walk into a situation where you're playing a team that you, that is, um, hasn't won a Big Ten game in two years that um, is just kind of in, in chaos. And then you add in the the stadium atmosphere, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, just there was, and, and we saw it, you know, just kind of, you know, gauging the fan base as we're able to do through social media and things like that throughout the week. There just wasn't a whole lot of buzz for the game. And I think that that carried over to some degree. And I think um, it took kind of getting there, get, you know, getting hit a couple of times to kind of get them going. Um, I don't have the first half versus second half breakdown, but just looking at the, the stats for the game, they certainly turned it on in the second half. Um, you know, uh, the passing records, passing attack, I think had around 150 yards at halftime, ended up with just 199. Um, Isaiah Pacheco, I thought was really solid for, for Rutgers. And I thought that He's they're way too good for Rutgers. Yeah. And I, I, this will surprise you, Bill. I have not watched a whole lot of Rutgers football this year, so I, I don't know what he's looked like up until this point. Um, it looked like a, a team in Rutgers that had you know was just going to leave it all out there. They, this was their last game, um, 
if you got them in an honest moment, you know, knew they weren't going to win the game, but it was just going to, you know, whatever was left in the tank for them, you know, they were going to put it all out there. And um, Franklin alluded this to, to this a little bit after the game as well, that they always get a, you know, Rutgers' best shot, I think. Um, you know, there's a lot of kids on that team that wanted a Penn State offer that never got one. There's the perceived, you know, uh, rivalry aspect from their side of things. So um, I thought it was, um, you know, they played hard. I thought Penn State kind of eased their way into the game over the first couple quarters and um, probably needed to get hit a little bit to, to get themselves going to some degree. Yeah, looking at the, just the Penn State Rutgers games over the, James Franklin era. Uh, of course, that first game that they played 2014, Penn State won 13 to 10. Following year 28 to 3, Penn State. Following year 39 to nothing, Penn State. Following year 35 to 6, Penn State. Last year 20 to 7, which I actually forgot that game ended 20 to 7 before this year. This game uh, was 27 to 6. Uh, for me in the first half, it basically there were basically two things that really stuck out to me. One was I thought they were a little bit too excited. I, uh, too excited isn't the word. I thought they wanted to get Levis comfortable throwing the football. He threw it, uh, I, I want to say, eight times compared to 22 runs during the first half, which that doesn't, like, that sounds like a huge difference. Uh, when you saw how just incapable Rutgers was of stopping Penn State from running the football, uh, I'll pull them, pull the numbers up here. Uh, in a second, but Rutgers, whenever Penn State was running the football, Rutgers was basically giving up five or six yards every single time. It was 22 carries, 111 yards, five yards per carry, nine passes, 21 yards, 2.3 runs per carry at the half. It seemed to me like they wanted just to build, whether it's build that confidence in Levis, uh, give him game reps, doing that sort of thing. Whatever it is, they were fine with doing that because they knew over the course of the entire game uh, that Rutgers was not going to beat them. They'd be able to keep Rutgers at arm's length, even if it was a four point game uh, where, you know, Rutgers missed a field goal heading into the half that could have made it a one point game, all that stuff. But the other thing, the bigger thing was, and this was something you and I talked about before we came in the air mat. In addition to everything that you said about, you know, not a lot of people at the game, bad weather, uh, backup quarterback, Gitor Grossmatos being out, all that stuff. This looked like for the third year in a row that Penn State was having a bit of a hangover after losing a tight and hotly contested and tough game against Ohio State. Uh, they just looked like that, again, they were stuck in first gear. They couldn't quite get out of that. They were able to get a touchdown uh, in the first half, uh, in the first quarter, on their uh, I want to say their their third drive, nice long drive, march right down the field, all that stuff. And but otherwise, punt, 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 interception, end of half. It reminded me a lot of playing Michigan State the last two years after playing Ohio State, where it just looked like Penn State was sleepwalking a bit and they needed to wake up and they needed to to get, you know, get to halftime and have James Franklin and Brent Pry and whomever else, those leaders in the locker room yell at everybody. With the big difference here being that Michigan State the last two years has been an exponentially better football team than a Rutgers team that, even though, like you said, they played their hearts out, they still are Rutgers. 
Uh, there's a gigantic talent gap. There's a gap in execution, all that stuff. So I, like, I just thought that's kind of the situation that they were in the entire time. I know there were people who were saying, oh, they were getting young guys on, uh, one to get some dudes who still redshirt eligible, perhaps more action, uh, get, you know, those second year guys who aren't, re- you know, who can't be redshirted again, but haven't played a ton of football, get them some more action, you know, the Daniel Josephs of the world. I didn't think that was a ne- was necessarily a huge issue, Matt. I mean, obviously you want them to run with the ones as much as possible, and keep you know get things at arm's length. Did, did you? We'll, we'll have snap counts confirm this uh, a little bit. You, you know, if you're listening to this on Monday, hopefully sometime today, if not later in the week. Did you? What, what did you think of being in a situation where? Uh, you know, Daniel Joseph get, picks up a tackle. Judge Culpepper picks up a tackle. Joey Porter Jr. gets a few. Charlie Catcher gets a few. Those younger dudes being on the field and being put in a position where they're getting game reps, even though the game was pretty close in the first half. I'm, I'm going to justify this by saying I think this is almost exhibition gamey. Um, you saw them do it a lot early. You know, the Buffalo game sticks out to me, a game where they got pushed a little bit in the first half um, while they were rotating a lot of guys on both sides of the ball. Um, I think you can get away with that in games where you know you can flip that switch, like I said, and get the win. Look, in Penn State's, in the big picture here, Penn State winning 27-6 or 47-6 wasn't going to have a huge bearing on much of anything. I don't think they're going to be penalized in the college football rankings. I don't think it's going to cost them you know, a Rose Bowl shot if it comes down to that. Um, whatever happened on Saturday, short of a massive, massive upset, which, um, like we talked about last week leading up to the game, just wasn't going to happen unless the bus broke down in the way of the stadium. Um, it's an opportunity to get those guys run in a game where, technically speaking, there's a little doubt there. You know, the game's not over. They're meaningful reps. I think in 2020 and 2021, that kind of stuff pays some sort of benefit. And I think you take the opportunity to do that. I think, um, you know, getting judge Culpepper out there in a game when it's seven to three and you're trying to, um, you keep Rutgers out of the end zone, trying to end drives. That experience is valuable. Um, even just mentally, if it's, you know, a series to, you know, here or there, um, down the road. So you saw them, like, like I said, flip that switch in the second half and pull away and kind of take control of the game, relatively easily early on and it's and so i think that's that's the benefit of getting those guys in there um i think if they were playing you know michigan state or indiana or you know pick pick a mid-level big 10 team on saturday instead of Rutgers, i don't think you see that kind of rotation um i think you obviously probably see a little bit more energy from the team too um just because of who they've of who they were facing So move on to the second half of the game. Uh, Penn State puts up 20 second half points compared to three for Rutgers. The Nittany Lions have three touchdown drives. Uh, Journey Brown, outstanding. Uh, Will Levis, he went to the Sean Clifford School picking up a ball that bounced and throwing it for a big uh, completion for his one. You know, he had 81 yards passing yards on the day uh 44 of them came on a touchdown pass to Jahan Dotson uh Penn State's defense ended up 
it's weird. The first half was punt, field goal, punt, punt, missed field goal for Rutgers. It still feel felt like Penn State's defense took a big step forward after the half. Uh, Rutgers had one scoring drive for a field goal that was aided by a let's call it soft roughing the passer penalty on a third and nine. Uh, Cam Brown ran into um, Rutgers' Johnny Langan, bumps, who bumps into Jason Oa and then falls to the ground, and they give him roughing for that. I, that I, I don't put that on Langan as much as I put that on just some ghastly officiating. Uh, Matt, to you, second half, outside of the fact that Penn State really didn't let Will Levis throw it all that much. He threw five passes in the second half, and they ran it 24 times. Uh, we had a nice little Ricky Slade cameo, which I didn't see. I, I admittedly didn't see coming, and he made the best of that opportunity. I didn't think that much happened other than they kind of just, you know, they woke up a bit. It really felt like they woke up a bit and went, what, and went listen, you're not going to stop us running the football. We're just going to run it down your throats if you can stop us, congratulations, If but we know you're not going to. Yeah, I thought they probably committed a little bit more to the run consistently than they did in the first half. I think the numbers in the first half were 29 rushes, or 22 rushes, 9 passes. Um, you said it was 24-5 in the second half. Um, I thought they just remained more committed to the run. They obviously you know, sprinkled in those, those few passes. Um, if not for... Um, I think this was a second half play, the interception on the one-on-one kind of jump ball play where um, that was the first Daniel... half. Okay, well I'm going to pretend it was the second half because my my <laughs> theories my theory seems a lot better that way. Um, maybe it was the KJ Hamler pass that was underthrown a little bit in the second half. Um, but regardless, I thought they when they did go to throw the ball, it was more lo- looking to hit those chunk plays and they hit the one to Dotson. Um, but the it was much more of a commitment to we're just going to be more physical up front. We're going to trust our battering ram of a backup quarterback. We're going to trust journey Brown. I thought Ricky Slade kind of um, brought a little bit of energy. Um, saw those flashes of what we saw last year from him as a freshman. Um, and I don't, you know, we'll, we'll learn in the coming weeks, whether this is um, anything to, to put any stock in, but he had a social media post after the game where um, in essence said that he was looking forward to getting back into Beaver stadium. So, um, whether that quiets any of the, the transfer speculation that's been out there, we'll, I suppose, find out in the next weeks and months. But um, I thought it was just one of those, okay, guys, it's time to go. Um, we're going to just, we're going to win this game by being bigger and stronger than them. And that's really what the the offense in the second half was. Um, like you and I talked about during the bill, game bill, it was a, you know, they, they really committed to what they needed to do. Yeah, I, while you were uh, while you were talking, I did the, you, you know, I went through and checked the box score. Levis was four for five through the air, so you know he took advantage of when he was given, you, you know, when he was asked to throw the football. Uh, there was a sack in there, might have been, might have been one or two sack, uh, one other sack in there, or something. I don't recall off the top of my head, but he did, uh, he did what he had to do. Uh, he, he did what he had to do. With his arm and his legs. Again, he's the backup quarterback. Your expectations can only be so much with him. Uh, Journey Brown was awesome. Uh, He had an 18-yard touchdown run in there. Uh, They got down to the doorstep after a 33-yard run by him. He punched it in uh, to make it 27. He's turned into just... I'm sure we'll mention him a little bit later when we talk about... We do kind of a general wrap of, of the regular season. He's a guy who... 
you you can't help but root for him when you hear his backstory and then he backs it up on the field. And it's just really, really cool to see all of that. And you mix that in with Will Levis having a really good game on the ground. And it was a, a potent day for Penn State's rushing attack. 46 carries, 252 yards, and three scores. Final ends up 27-6. to six. Uh, Big takeaways, Matt. It seems like you're with me in that you know, you know, I'm not putting too much in the offense kind of being sluggish. I, I, I thought they were not not their best first half, and they did enough during the second half that I'm not too worried. But do you disagree with anything I just said? Not at all. Yeah, so we'll get into uh, about 10, 15 minutes ago, I mentioned a kind of biggish thing that I think we could take away is that this trend of Penn State's defense allowing quarterbacks to have, you know, allowing opposing offenses to have pretty good games. Uh, we saw it, you, you know, just off of the top of my head this season. I, I, I know either it was Matt who wrote something about this Buffalo's quarterback, Pitt's quarterback had uh, career games against Penn State. Well, not career game. They had very, very good games. I guess you can call career games to various extents. Against Penn State this year, Shea Patterson from Michigan had a good uh, game against Penn State. Minnesota's Tanner Morgan, he had a big one. Uh, Indiana's Peyton Ramsey, he had a big one. Justin Fields is Justin Fields. He's going to do that sort of thing. And then this week, uh, Johnny Langan for Rutgers, not exactly the most dynamic passer in college football, 12 for 24, 164 yards through the air. Rutgers is able to run it 44 times for 184 yards. I, I certainly think that not having Eter Gross Matos aided in this a decent amount. Uh, I also think they're, you know, the fact that they were basically saying, well, listen, if you want to get underneath stuff, go ahead. But at a certain point, you're going to have to score and you're not going to do that against us also contributed to this, but I I've, I don't think Brent Pry's job should be in jeopardy or anything like that, but I certainly think that this is something that he's going to need to tighten up as, uh, you, you know, once in the weeks leading up to the bowl game against what should be a New Year's Six opponent, and then once we get into the offseason looking to 2020. Yeah, I think it's, it's baffling. We've talked about this, it feels like, just about every week when we've done this recap, that for the most part, the defense, specifically the past defense, just hasn't lived up to the the expectations. It hasn't lived up to, when you look at the personnel on paper, what you think you should be having. Um, and it's a combination of a hundred different things. The th- same stuff we've talked about, lack of pressure. Uh, um, you know, guys in the secondary not playing up to, to what we've seen them do previously. Um, and... It's, it's going to be, like you said, Bill, one of those things that leading up to the bowl game and then in the offseason, um, as you know, there's the self-evaluations going on, you know, what, where can we get better, how do we get better, that is, um, to me, I, I think the biggest red flag, if you will, it's not, like you said, something that's going to cost people jobs or anything like that, but when you look at the experience and the talent level on all three levels of the defense from the line back to the secondary – it just, for the most part, underperformed. And I think, um, you know, as great as 10 and 2 is, um, you know, it's better than I think a lot of us expected going into the year. Um, I don't think any of us thought we'd be here talking about a potential Rose Bowl berth on December 1st or December 2nd, I guess, when most of you guys are going to be listening to this. But it's when you go back and you look at the Minnesota game, which I think is the one game that we all kind of circle here because it felt like Penn State 
beat themselves in a lot of ways on both sides of the ball. But at the same time, they gave up almost 500 yards of offense and really just got gashed through the air, weren't able to get pressure on Morgan. And 11 and 1 is a lot bigger than 10 and 2, even if it doesn't get you know the playoff, which I my guess would be it wouldn't based on how things have played out to this point. But when you hear the talk of going from good to elite, though that's the kind of thing, the small little steps that um, are small looking, but significantly big and difficult to achieve. That's the kind of thing you look at. And I think that's, you know, those little things they need to look to improve on over you know, the next month leading up to a bowl game. And then in the, the long off season um, that comes after that. Yeah. I, We've made it a – oh, God, sorry. While you were speaking, can you hear the uh, CBS thing tormenting me? Oh, there we go. Sorry, I was was I was pulling up just some general bull projections before we get to that, and then CBS put me in autoplay hell, so I have to yeah, – I'm not cutting any of this is what the point is. Uh, the I, I agree with you. Like, I don't think – again, I don't think Brent Pride's losing his job. I think in the event that his name pops up in the head coaching carousel, that – and he ends up taking a job somewhere I think that would probably be not great for Penn State. Uh, the big thing with any defense, allow it, you never want to allow yards, you never want to allow uh, completions, you never want to allow all that stuff that can come back uh, to bite your team in the rear end. Having said that, Penn State, the big thing is you're not allowing points because you can allow a billion points, but if you allow allow zero or billion yards if you allow zero points you're going to win the football game penn state was seventh in college football in points allowed the only teams above them were clemson georgia utah ohio state uh four teams that are going to have something to say that could have something to say in the playoff race uh san diego state which was which always has a good defense but even that kind of surprised me and then iowa which plays in the big 10 west and doesn't believe in offense so penn state is really good at not letting you score on them. I think that there was there was a bit of an expectation that the defensive line was going to be a lot better. Every defense, you've looked no further than Clemson or Ohio State, looks a whole hell of a lot better when you're able to get home with four guys. And that's just something that Penn State wasn't quite able to do this season. And it kind of threw things out of whack. And I don't know if that's on... Sh- Sean Spencer, I don't know if that's on, you know, our expectations being too high for the players, whatever it might be, but they've also built up enough goodwill, I would argue, that despite the fact that there were some inconsistent performances on that side of the football, they were still a top 10 unit in SP in defensive SP plus. They were still seventh in points allowed. They were, uh, let's see, in total yards, they were top 30-ish, I believe, so that uh, obviously could be better. But they've built up enough goodwill, and they've built up enough, um, I, I don't know what the word is, we know that they are good defensive staff, and that over the years they have been good at identifying issues and improving on them. So I'm not going to be too concerned about this until next year. The defense is probably going to bring back a whole lot of talent. The guys that they're losing, you know, Garrett Taylor, Cam Brown, Jan Johnson, Robert Windsor, they have other dudes that can fill in those spots pretty admirably, but still, that's something that I think could have uh, could have been better in the Rutgers game and could have been better as a general thing. 
Matt, we don't have too much else to talk about with regards to Penn State, so let's just look back on the season. We'll do it just in very, very broad terms uh, because we'll, we, we need off-season podcasts to one extent or another. Let's just start with we'll, we'll do this in two. We'll do two things here. First one, as you look back at the season, what is kind of the thing that you were happiest about? And we'll say we'll say football related, not you know the fact that Penn State won ten games, uh, seven Big Ten wins, going to a New Year's Six Bowl, that thing. So just in terms of the football they played, what were you happiest about with this Penn State team? Well, I think you saw the potential of a lot of young players. Um, and I, th- I say I emphasize potential because I think guys like Sean Clifford and Journey Brown and Micah Parsons and um, you know, Marquise Wilson and Keaton Ellis, um, and I could go on and on, but those are some of the first names that jumped to mind that that have played significant roles this year. You saw them flash that that potential, and there's certainly um, multiple steps ahead for for each of them and and other players I didn't mention to to take that next step. But it was encouraging to see kind of that baseline for all of them. Um, I th- you you see the potential in Sean Clifford. You see you know how good his arm is. You see the athleticism. Um, you see the the for the most part a lot of the physical tools are there. It's the the mental part of the game that comes and goes. Um, and I'm going to be real curious to see what he looks like, assuming he gets healthy. And there's no reason to suspect he won't be for the bowl game. But what that those 15 extra practices, what that time to get those bumps and bruises healed up does for him against whoever they, they play in, in the bowl game. Um, you touched on journey Brown earlier, kind of taking the bull by the horns and, and making that running back position. His, um, you certainly aided a little bit by Noah Kane's injury over the second half of the year. But, um, in a spot where I think as much as the coaches talked about, we've got four really good players and we're going to give them all an opportunity. I think they, they, a lot of that was because going into the year and over the first half of the season, no one really stepped up to say, okay, this is my job until, until journey Brown. And I think Noah Kane had started to do that too, before the injury. Um, you saw, I think a pair of cornerbacks and Marquise Wilson and Keaton Ellis that have a lot of the tools to be really good players. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, as much as some of those, um, those bumps that they took throughout the year hurt in the moment, I think they're both going to be better players for that. Um, I love seeing Lamont Wade, um, especially over the second half of the year, really step up and make that that uh, safety position opposite Garrett Taylor his. Um, Brisker still obviously was getting time, but um, to see a kid like that that I think is really easy to root for on a lot of levels have the performance he did against Ohio State um, and see his um, maturity after the game, um, just talking about how, how hard he took that, how much he wanted to make sure um, his teammates appreciate you know, how much he make sure his teammates knew how much he appreciated them and how much he loved them. And I think that really plays on the biggest thing that I've come away with this year, aside from the 10 wins and Rose bowls and, and things like that is just how close this team is. Um, and I think ultimately long-term that's the thing that's going to benefit the program as a whole, the most um, you saw it with Pat Fryermuth opting to come back and he mentioned it in his statement that one of the big reasons is how close this team is. Um, and th- there are still going to be guys that are going to go pro um, and we'll learn about those in the coming weeks and month, but there's a lot of borderline guys on this team. And I say that, you know, as far as guys that could probably go and be drafted, but, and, and make some money to go play football, but 
could benefit both financially and otherwise by sticking around. I think you're going to see that with some of those guys that in previous years might have opted to, to leave early might are going to give a much stronger consideration to sticking around because of just the atmosphere around the program. These are guys that clearly love playing for each other. And you talk about big picture with, with recruiting and, and building a program that's sustainable. That kind of stuff counts. Um, you know, you see it with the Ohio States and Clemson's and Alabama's of the world where guys that could make that, take that next step up to come back because they want to achieve something great with those guys they've, they've played with for three or four years. And I think you're starting to see the, the early signs of that at Penn state. And that's, that's only a positive going forward, both with keeping talent in the program and attracting new talent on the recruiting trail. It's interesting because one thing I was really stoked about was how it's, they kind of got the opportunity to play the long game uh, with how much they were able to get younger guys opportunities to, to contribute. I mean, Sean Clifford is a first year starter. They had two running back, two true freshmen in the running back rotation. Uh, They had a bunch of dudes in the receiver rotation who, you know, unfortunately one of those has seems like he's going to head elsewhere, but Daniel George is still a younger guy. They were able to get him some run. Jahan Dotson. He's played a lot of football. He's still a true sophomore. Offensive line, they got Mike Miranda in, they got Des Holmes in, uh, Rasheed Walker seems like he's going to be really, really good. Other side of the football, they always use a ton of bodies in the defensive line. They were able to get Jesse Lukita and Ellis Brooks looks in the linebacker, all the dudes in the secondary that you mentioned. So I was really happy with how they were able to do that and get guys who are going to contribute next year opportunities to play and still manage to go 10-2 against a very difficult schedule. Um, I don't have a college football strength of schedule uh, stuff up ahead of me. I can pull that up here right now. But yeah, Penn State was seventh nationally in terms of uh, the most difficult schedule that they played this season by one metric. Like It was a very, very tough schedule that they had to go up against and they still managed to go 10 and two and the future is very bright. Like they were able to mix those teams together really well. Then as for a specific thing, I was very happy with how things have turned out at running back this year. Um, Ricky Slade, I thought was going to have a bigger year, but he didn't lose the running back job as much as a guy like journey Brown took it from him. Noah Kane uh, gives them a different, you know, all three of the running backs outside of Kane, have the athleticism, have the speed, have the agility to make guys miss and make things happen. But Noah Kane kind of gives them a counterbalance to that. But Slay is a talented dude. Journey Brown is a talented dude. And Devin Ford's a talented dude. Plus, Sean Clifford, you know, Ohio State game aside, looked like he was growing more and more comfortable in the running game. So I think Penn State's rushing attack has the potential to be really, really dangerous next year. And I was really glad with how that turned out. Uh... But there's always going to be room for improvement. They went ten, they have a pair of losses this year, and there are certainly places where they could have been better. Matt, again, just the one general thing that you wanted to see Penn State do better this season. Well, I think it goes back to the defense. Um, I don't. I mean, there's certainly room for growth in the offense, but I, I attribute a lot of that to just the the youth and the inexperience at a lot of positions, um, and. I think it's, you know, all things considered, I, I don't think there was a much more that, 
that could have been done. We can nitpick and we can get, we'll get into it more in the off season for sure. But um, like I said earlier, when you look across the depth chart on defense and you see the names that are there and you, you've seen what those names have accomplished in their, their time here and just the overall experience level at most of those spots, you kind of roll, you know, scratch your head a little bit just because you feel like the numbers should be better than, than what they are based on the personnel and whether that's scheme and coaching or lack of execution or, or whatever it is. And it's a combination of all those sure, most assuredly. But um, I think when you look at, at the Minnesota game, you look at the Indiana game, you know, which was a win, but certainly not a, a dominant win in any stretch of the imagination. Um, there were some warts exposed over the second half of the year that um, I think in a way kept this team from potentially taking that, that next big step. Um, we talked about it so much at the end of the year that this was a team that we all expect to be led by the defense. That was where the, the experience lied. That was where the, the proven talent was. And they certainly lived up to it over the first six and a half, seven games of the year. And then the wheels didn't come off, but it, uh, it exposed some, some, some chassis damage or some body damage. There there were some cracks in the armor. Yeah. You know, whatever metaphor you want to go with, um, and I, I think there's a lot of talent coming back on next year's team off of that. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to see what this month between now and the bowl game and, and bowl games are, are fool's gold in a lot of way. It's hard to take a lot from them because it's, you've got a month to prepare for one specific team. Um, you've got extra practices to prepare, prepare for that team. You've got time to, to get healthy. So it's, in a lot of ways can be a bit of a, uh, an illusion as far as what you look like in that game. But I think it's an opportunity, especially for some of those young guys we know are coming back next year to create a little bit of momentum going into the off season to, to end things on a positive note, because I, I feel like, and I'm sure if you ask the players, the same thing and the coach, the same thing in an honest moment that they have not been their best, especially on that side of the ball over the last, five-ish weeks of the season. I'll go to the other side of the football just because you spent a lot of time in the defense and I don't want to echo everything that you said, even though I agree with basically all of it. Uh, I wanted to see better wide receiver play at a Penn State. Uh, I think that there is a ton of talent at receiver, but I think we got a bit of a crash course in two things. One, relying on young dudes. uh, And two... Uh, just the dangers of what happens when a group has the three position coaches in three years. Uh, I know that doesn't apply to Justin Shorter, Jahan Dotson, but uh, and Daniel George was a true freshman last year too. But for those other guys, you would think to maybe supplement them: uh, Cam Sullivan, Brown, uh, Matt Kippenhammer, even KJ Hamler had his ups and downs. There were moments where I didn't think Penn State's receiving core quite lived up to the just raw talent that exists there. Uh, You know, part of that is Sean Clifford. In in moments of worry, he turned to KJ Hamler and Pat Fryermuth, and there was never quite that extra. And and Jahan Dotson was, you know, had his moments, but there was never quite that third guy or consistent second guy who was able to uh, take some of the pressure off of them. Uh, you know, there's Pat Fryermuth, obviously, but I more mean in, at, at the receiver positions. They didn't have as good of a 
passing threat out of the backfield this year, uh, which you know doesn't take away from the receivers they I, I, the guys they had back there. It's just Miles Sanders had twenty some odd catches out of the backfield. Saquon Barkley was Saquon Barkley. There was a bit of a drop off there. Like that's where I wanted to see Journey uh, Ricky Slade a little bit more. But I thought they could have been a bit better as pass catchers. I think they will be better. Uh, next year, and if KJ Hamler comes back, I think that takes things to a different level. But I think Jahan Dotson with another year. We already know that Pat Frymer is coming back. Dotson with another year in this program. Uh, shorter sounds like he's gone, but on the off chance he comes back another year, uh, you know, basically the first off season where he doesn't have to worry about being new to college or getting healthy. Then you look at a guy like a Daniel George, who seems like he could be prime for a breakout. They have John Dunmore, uh, who exciting true freshman who used a red shirt this season. They have a bunch of guys coming in this recruiting class, some of whom might be able or seem like they could be able to step on campus day one and contribute. That's where I think on the offense, that's where they have the biggest amount of room to grow. And, you know, they have a month coming up to potentially do that as we get to bowl season. Uh, I have a few bowl projections pulled up right now. Jason Kirk of SB Nation has Penn State playing Utah in the Rose Bowl. Uh, Kyle Bonagura and Mark Schleybaugh of ESPN both have Penn State in the Rose Bowl, the former with them playing Oregon, the latter with them playing Utah. And Jerry Palm of CBS Sports has Penn State going to the Orange Bowl to take on Virginia. Matt, I'm going to go out and limb and guess that I – know which bowl you want Penn State going to. Uh, where do you want to see Penn State go, and who do you want to see them play, and why do you want to see them play them? Well, well ob- the obvious answer is the Rose Bowl, and it's just, you know, I'm a, a unique Penn State fan in that I'm one of those people that grew up with the Rose Bowl being your ultimate goal when you grow up outside Columbus like I do. That's If you go to the Rose Bowl, you probably achieved a lot of your goals. Um, and obviously things have changed now with the playoff and, and everything, but it's never a bad season when you end in the Rose bowl. And I would, I'd love to see them play either Oregon or Utah, but I think from a, a buzz standpoint, I think beating Oregon probably gives you a little bit more buzz, just fair or not. That brand name carries a little bit more weight than Utah does. I think Utah's a better team. Um, and I, I think Utah probably beats Oregon, um, and I'd love to see them get a shot in the playoff if things break yep. right. Um, I think that defense can cause someone a lot of issues. Um, they don't get talked about nearly enough. But um, if you well, wanna, I, when Kyle Whittingham goes out to recruit players at every single position, I think I made this joke with Virginia the other day. Like the number one priority to play football at Utah is you have to be willing to hit people very, very hard. And watching them, what like if you have not gotten a chance to check out Utah playing football this season, please watch the Pac-12 title game this weekend because everyone knows what Oregon is. Utah, there's a chance that Utah just puts a whooping on them. Like they are an awesome, awesome football team. They, and they've been since that USC loss. Just um, I don't want to say dominant, but they've looked really, really good. And I think, um, like I said, if things break right. Um, I think Oregon's got the inside track if they beat Baylor on on Saturday in the Big 12 championship game for that fourth spot should LSU – who did I say? You said Oregon, which – listen, I'd be all for Oregon against Baylor. That game would be awesome. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, Oklahoma, I think if they they take care of business in the the Big 12 game, they probably get in um, 
assuming LSU beats Georgia. Um, so with all that said, I don't think going to the Orange Bowl and playing Virginia, which seems like a foregone conclusion as far as the ACC rep there after their win over Virginia Tech on Saturday, um, I think it would lack a little bit of the, the, the buzz, um, just given Virginia at best will be barely ranked and more than likely not ranked after Clemson does terrible things to them on Saturday. But at the end of the year, no one asks, you know, who did you beat for your 11th win in that New Year's Six game? They ask, they say, oh, you won that New Year's Six game. And the Orange Bowl is a, is a major bowl game. Um, so I, I don't think, assuming either of those projections are, are accurate, that Penn State can really go wrong. I think they have a great shot against any of those three teams. Um, you know, in, in order of, of toughest, Utah, Oregon, and Virginia being the they'd probably be the largest favorite against them. But um, regardless, I think the New Year's Six seems likely. And I think based on what we thought three months ago, the fact that we're having this conversation right now is is a great positive sign for the program as a whole, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, like you said, all due respect to uh, the Orange Bowl. And then I've seen a projection or two that has them in the Cotton Bowl potentially. Uh, you know, both good football games. There is a weight and a gravity to the Rose Bowl that no, like even the playoff games, you know, it's, you won the semifinal, you, you participated in the semifinals, you participated in the national title game. Like, obviously you play to win the national championship, but there is a prestige, prestige that comes from the Rose Bowl that no other bowl really has, just the pageantry of it, uh, the fact that it rings in the new year every year, the Rose Bowl itself, which is just the perfect football watching. Like, I'm a pretty cynical person with a lot of stuff. Um, I was cynical going into the Rose Bowl in 2017 when Penn State played USC that it was as good as everyone says it is, and then I got there and it was even better than everyone said it was. Like, it's just perfect in every single way. And then adding to it, the last time Penn State went there, I'm guessing there's a bit of a sour taste in every person still in the programs that was there in that for that game mouth about how the Rose Bowl went down. I Basically, all of the coaching staff was there for the Rose Bowl. Uh, you know, a handful of the players that are on the current team uh, – Steven Gonzalez is on the offensive line for that one. Robert Windsor might have gotten some run during that. Uh, Cam Brown was there. Blake Gilligan was there. John Reed. What, was he there or did he get hurt? Yeah, I believe he was on, on the field for that one. So all that stuff together, getting to the Rose Bowl and then playing. You, you, if Utah wins the, wins the Pac-12, I think they should make the playoff, even if Oklahoma uh, wins the Big 12. But, and pl- but regardless, playing the team that ends up winning the Pac-12, like, that would be huge. That would be a huge, huge win for Penn State. It would be a great game either way. If you can promise me that they're – if you tell me right now that they're going to the Rose Bowl against whomever wins the Pac-12, assuming Utah doesn't make it in, I would take that every single day. I think that would be a hell of a game. I think Penn State would uh, put up a hell of a – I don't know if they'd necessarily win it because – Oregon and Utah are both really good football teams, but I think they put up one hell of a fight. And it would be it would be the opportunity for them to kind to make up for the fact that the team that won the Big Ten lost that game. 
might as well get that momentum heading into next season where Penn State's going to be talked about it as a playoff team uh, on you know the granddaddy of them all. So we'll, we'll see in a week what actually ends up happening there. I, I think that's it for Penn State talking this edition of the pod. Uh, let's get into the Big Ten recap. First off, Friday night, Iowa 27, Nebraska 24. Hawkeyes ending their seat regular season with a win. Nebraska was unable to get bowl eligible. Uh, people got kind of mad at this one because Iowa's kicker hit a game-winning field goal and then like taunted Nebraska's sideline, to which I would respond, um, every bad thing that happened uh, to Nebraska on the field this year, they totally deserve, Matt. I actually was able to watch a fair amount of this one. Um, I kind of tuned out in the second half because Iowa was up. I think it was 24-10. Then all of a sudden I looked up and it was tied and then the game-winning field goal. Um, well, I have no problem with any kicker, punter, specialist in general taunting if they come through with a win, especially with um, – and, and not all of this is, is Nebraska's fault per se, but after all the attention they got this offseason with – you know, Scott Frost in his second year and Adrian Martinez in his second year, you know, where they're going to be and this is their year, they're back. And just having them fall on their faces and having their shot at the, the quick lane bowl or, or whatever third tier bowl they were going to go to at six and six ended by a kicker at home with a half full Memorial Stadium is just, is just about perfect. I think if you're into the metaphor thing. God, I, I, I'm trying to find it. Uh, Scott Frost had some quote after the game uh, where, like, he mentioned that Nebraska's players, when he got there, they just lacked, like, a toughness about them. Like, just what a dork, man. Like, come on. You're, even if that is true, which who cares? Like, you're, there's no way to quantify that uh, because it's a thing that coaches make up. At this point, it's your program. It's on you if by game 24, whatever it is, your team isn't at a point where they're tough enough to go toe-to-toe at home with Iowa. Just, just, I I really hope we don't do the Nebraska hype thing again this year because, man, that would... It's coming. We we all know it's coming. Can Scott Frost say... There, there are a lot of things I want to say that I can't because we try not to swear on this podcast. Um, we'll save the actually good games for a little bit later. Uh, Northwestern 29, Illinois 10. I didn't watch any of this game, but hey, Northwestern fired, finally fired their very bad offensive coordinator. So uh, congrats on sending him out with a win. Um, and, and sorry to everyone, and Bill, you know who I'm talking about, that um, put undue amounts of money on Illinois to win this game. And... and um, Look, great year for Illinois, six and six. They're going to a bowl game, but um, <laughs> nineteen at home to Northwest. Tr- trust Lovey Smith and trust Illinois football at your own risk would be my my lesson to take away from this one. Yeah, uh, speaking of trusting at your own w- risk, Indiana one win away from achieving destiny as nine. Indiana a double overtime win against Purdue, forty four to forty one. Um, I, I didn't get a chance to watch any of this game. I, I wish I did. It looks like this was a pretty crazy one. But Indiana, man, good for you. If any fan base deserves eight and four, uh, you know, and a potential to get to nine wins in their bowl game, it is Indiana football and Purdue. Uh, listen, everyone got hurt. You guys will be fine eventually. 
the the bucket game is one of my favorite games every year because it's just utterly ridiculous. You have the insanity that is Indiana football, even if it's not as crazy as it used to be. And then Jeff Brom and whatever he cooks up, you know, for that game, especially in a year where not a whole lot has gone right for them. Like you said, injury wise, um, just a crazy football game and double overtime. And um, the, the bucket is coming home to Bloomington. <laughs> yes, we are. We are a Penn State podcast first, and then one A is we're an Indiana podcast. So shout out to the Hoosiers. Uh, game I really don't. Uh, I'm really glad I actually didn't watch all that much of. I actually watched the final drive by the team that lost Michigan State 19, Maryland 16. A uh, bit of a snake bitten year in College Park. Uh, seems like there's going to be a whole lot going on in the coming weeks. Is you know, Michael Oxley moves some stuff around. Uh, and then speaking of moving some stuff around, uh, Mark D'Antonio, it, it, it's just weird. Everything that I read about this game, Matt, said it looked like a football team that is, one, ready for the year to end, and two, and more importantly, ready for things to change. Uh, did you catch any of that, and can you confirm that's basically the I, vibe? I did get? not see any of this one. Um, I was saying, on the same time as the Penn State came and was – was not in my my own basement. Was in uh, my my childhood basement watching the game. So I only had one television to to turn to. But um, I, I think that's a great way to describe it. I think there's certainly changes coming in in College Park, and we'll learn about that. I would guess in the next couple of days, based on the the buzz that's out there. But um, it's going to be real interesting to see what happens with Michigan State. I think everyone from the outside looking in realizes that. There needs to be a pretty major shakeup, and if, if Mark D'Antonio is going to come back, and all indications are that he will, based on his own statements and based on what has been said earlier in the year by the administration at the school, that um, certainly on the offensive side of the ball, and I'm guessing the defensive side of the ball too, that things have just gotten very stale there, and what worked four or five years ago just clearly isn't now um, sneaking into a bowl game at six and six and having the um, you know. The, the good fortune of having Rutgers in Maryland in your last two games and just getting that, that six win by three points. Um, you, Spartan stadium was half full at best. Um, when that game started, there's just, um, a real lack of energy around the program right now. And when you see, um, especially in your division, Ohio state and Penn state kind of pulling away from the, the rest of the, the group. And we'll talk about the, the team that I didn't mention there in a second. Um, this can get sideways there really quick. It feels like without some some pretty major changes. Yeah, and even also working against them, the only Big Ten classes with worse uh, recruiting Big Ten programs with worse recruiting classes this upcoming year: Maryland, Indiana, Illinois, and Rutgers, which is about to get the new coach bump. Uh, so they're, they're just a total lack of juice right now. They gave out the wins that said program uh, hats that said program win on them. Uh, I'm not going to make fun of that as much as I think a lot of people have because like that just seems like something that you do uh, when, when you know you've reached the end of the line. But I don't know. Very weird vibes out of East Lansing. Uh, one game we're going to talk about a little bit, uh, Wisconsin 38, Minnesota 17, the boat rode until it got to this, till it uh, got into a snowstorm. And then at that point, Minnesota's ability to really carve up Wisconsin through the air. Weren't quite able to do that. Tanner Morgan had an okay game, 20 for 37, 296 yards, two touchdowns and a pick. 
then Wisconsin, they ran the ball decently well. Jack Cohn made good decisions through the air. I I thought I I had a feeling Wisconsin was going to win this game, Matt. That when I you know when I saw potential inclement weather, I thought that was going to give it to them. But I, I admit I'm I'm surprised they won by uh, 21 points. Yeah, I think they um, you know a couple turnovers benefited them. Um, I'm, I watched this on and off again. It was the same time as the Penn State game, so it was hard to keep track of everything. But um, they really pulled you know obviously pulled away in the second half here. They were um, had a 10-7 lead at halftime and, and pulled away for the, the big win in the second half. Um, certainly, I'm guessing weather played a part in this. Um, Minnesota, which is somewhat surprising, relies so much on the passing game, um, which is surprising in that you would think a team in Minneapolis wouldn't, wouldn't be so reliant <laughs> on, on, a, on a skill look, but, uh, but that is what they are. Um, and I, we talked about this a little bit last week, Bill, that Wisconsin has kind of been this forgotten team, um, at least as far as um, you know, media buzz, so to speak. They're up to 12th, I think, in the playoff rankings on the last edition. Um, so clearly, the the experts, so to speak, are the one have have noticed. Um, but I don't expect them to give Ohio State much of a game. But um, even though they lost that Illinois game, um, we talked about it at the time they kind of fell on their face themselves there, you know, with some fluke turnovers late and they get smoked by Ohio state the following week. And they've kind of been lurking in the weeds. Um, just a a really solid team. And, um, you know, as a Penn state fan that would like to make a return trip to Pasadena, um, a big thank you as well to Paul Christ. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I would have rather, even though it would have cost Penn state, it's Rose bowl chances, Almost certainly, I would have rather seen Minnesota get the chance to go to go to Indianapolis. I like. I don't think they would have beaten Ohio State, but we've seen what happens when Wisconsin plays them, and we know Ohio State's way better. And I think that maybe, just maybe, uh, those freak receivers that Minnesota has could have done a thing or two against Ohio State's you know outstanding secondary. I mean, still have to see what Sean Wade's uh, health status is after uh, the game, but it was a. Uh, yeah, it's a bit unfortunate. Minnesota, they, I think they deserve. They are a deserving team if a New York New Year's Six Bowl wants to take them. But I very much hope they don't get a spot over Penn State, and I hope Wisconsin does either. Even though Badgers picked up a big win, then the biggest win of them all. <laughs> uh, Ohio State thought it would be fun to toy with Michigan again. Uh, 56-27. It was close after a quarter, and then it wasn't close at all after that. Justin Fields, fourteen for twenty-five, three hundred two yards, four touchdowns. Uh, J.K. Dobbins, 31 carries, 211 yards, four touchdowns, other side of the coin. I was surprised when I saw Shea Patterson was 18 for 43. Uh, he picked up 305 yards of the air, touchdown to pick. Couldn't Michigan couldn't really get the ball running. To me, Matt, this is one of those games that kind of showed that there is a gap between Penn State and Ohio State. Uh, Depending on the year, there is a gap between Penn State and Michigan in either direction, but there is just a gigantic gap. I don't know if it's personnel. I don't know if it's scheme. I don't know if it's mental. What There is a huge, huge gap between Ohio State and Michigan right now, and I, I have zero idea what it will take for, you know, he's not going anywhere, for Jim Harbaugh to kind of close that gap and get to the point where Michigan is able to stay on the same field as Ohio State for four quarters. Well, I think they were um, 
a three huge mistakes away from being tied at worst going into halftime of this game. Um, they had the fumbled snap um, down the 10-yard line. They had the offside penalty by a senior in Kalik Hudson on a punt that gave Ohio State a first down. They were in the end zone two or three plays later. And then they had the drop touchdown pass right before, in, in my very unprofessional opinion, horrible horrible decision to kick the field goal that made the the 15 point game a 12 point game i was told only then, i was told by michigan men that only game. james franklin does that you know and then the the justification that was out there by some of our our favorite online friends um to, to kick that field goal but um michigan was it, we talked this is the same same narrative we had for penn state going in ohio state the week before you need to play a perfect game and then get a few breaks. And Michigan, over the first half, was self-inflicted wounds away from from doing just that, from playing their perfect game over two quarters. And Ohio State was, and certainly Justin Fields, were not firing all cylinders over the first 30 minutes. Um, but Michigan gave them that opening and um, just gave it away in the second half. I think Shea Patterson's second half numbers were like four for 22. Um, there were numerous drop passes. The defense um, that was getting gashed never really figured it out in the second half. Um, I don't know the numbers offhand, but I saw a tweet comparing um, Rutgers versus Ohio State um, to Michigan versus Ohio State the last two years. And and those numbers are not very good if you're a Michigan fan. The the points allowed and the yards allowed are, are eerily similar. Um, and obviously a different dynamic in those two games, but it really underscores, like you were saying, Bill, that um, the gap from Ohio State to Michigan is um, in a year where everyone seemed to think that this was Harbaugh's chance with the personnel he had back, with what Ohio State was going through with the transition, that if it was going to be any year, it had to be this year. And all they did was shave a few points off of what they lost by last year in Columbus. And... Um, you know, nine and three, probably going to, I think I saw the holiday bowl seems to be the popular pick for them. Um, in a year where by his own admission, James Harbaugh, I'm calling him James cause it's funny. Um, thought that this was, they were the favorite going into the year. He was asked back in August or July by the media, um, what he thought about being the conference favorite. And he said, I'd make us the favorite too. And, um, they certainly look better as a team, especially in offense over the last half of the year. But, um, you know, it's another nine and three, third place in the Big Ten East year for for the Savior in Ann Arbor. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's funny. This is the thing that Michigan hangs its hat on under Harbaugh has been its defense. Like above everything else, it's the fact that they're a tough, fast, physical, talented defense. Uh, Fifty six points to Ohio State this year, sixty two to Ohio State last year. It, they. It was it was jarring watching the extent to which Fields was able to just gash them for big plays through the air, and J.K. Dobbins was able to kind of get whatever he wanted on the ground. Um, like you mentioned, there was some weird decision-making. There was some battle. Everything basically went against Michigan in this game, uh, and that was before it got to the point where Ohio State was just the better football team. And you add all that up, I actually had a friend, uh, you know, Twitter friend, not an, a particularly big college football fan, but is aware of it enough, who said, 
So why, who asked? Like, are there actually people who think that Jim Harbaugh will never be able to beat Ohio State? And I said, you know, it's kind of 80-20, I'd say, that people say it in jest versus people actually believe it. And then you point to the fact that Michigan just has not been able Michigan just hasn't looked like it deserved to be on the same field as Ohio State over the last couple of years. And Ohio State has more talent than roster now. It is recruiting better. Like we're kind we're getting to the point where those earlier uh, Jim Harbaugh recruiting classes, the ones that were and Matt, you could speak on this a little bit more eloquently than I can, but last year it was the number eight class in college football. The year before that it was 22, so not great. But the year before that, number five with Donovan Peoples-Jones, Cesar Ruiz, Aubrey Solomon, people who were major contributors now. 2016, number eight. Like We are seeing Michigan and what it is doing with its blue chip classes and they still can't hang on the same field as Ohio State. And it's just fascinating the, uh, the, the uh, we'll call it a philosophical dilemma of whether or not Michigan can, you know, will get to the point where it can beat Ohio State. But you and I have spoken about this plenty, Matt. Like, in a way, they can't ever move on from Harbaugh by their own accord because he is the epitomization of Michigan football and him not working requires, you know, accepting some really hard truths about the way that football is played in 2019 and, you know, 2019 and beyond that you might not necessarily be able to do with Harbaugh at the helm. Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on the recruiting here briefly because we could do a whole podcast on, on Michigan football, and I would delight in that because it would be a lot of fun. But talent is not the issue at Michigan by and large. Um, there's one program in the country that can stack up blue-chip recruits with Ohio State, and that's Alabama. Um, yeah, we should get, but, but put some respect on Clemson's name. Oh, oh for sure. Well, I, when you just look at the raw percentage, Clemson's about 60 or 65. Ohio State and Alabama are, are pushing 80. Um, but – and I mentioned this online with a few of us, our friends earlier today, that once you get over that 50% mark, it's you're almost arguing semantics. And yes, Ohio State and Alabama have, from a raw numbers perspective, more talent. But um, what what teams like Penn State, for an easy example, have done with, against Ohio State over the last four years, playing them closer than anyone else in the country consistently, um, is there's no reason Michigan can't be doing that. And I think a big part of that is, um, I think there's a, a mental, uh, aspect to it. Of course. Um, you know, I saw a headline go across on Twitter earlier today about how Urban Meyer kind of killed the game by just turning up the, the talent level in Columbus to a level that was just above what Michigan had. But the fact that they just really, consistently haven't been terribly competitive and that gap just gets wider and wider um is is troubling and and don't get me wrong ohio state's done this to 11 of the 12 teams they played this year um you know we were on this podcast a week ago almost celebrating the fact that penn state kept it within 11 um against that roster and that collection of talent that they have there um but 
the the fact that the the best years um, or the, the best year to, to to make a dent really saw the gap get wider. I think is is my biggest takeaway. Um, Ohio State and to an extent Penn State are are winding that gap from a a big picture program status perspective. Um, you know, it's it's Ohio State and then everyone else. I think you can make a case based on the trends over the last four seasons now that it's Ohio State, then the gap to Penn State, and then I think you can say there's a gap to you know Michigan, Wisconsin, um, you know Iowa or Minnesota, whoever rises up in that that's that third tier um, in any given year. Um, it's going to be interesting to see where Michigan goes as a program here because they made the big change last year with bringing in Josh Gaddis and reinventing the offense. And I think by and large, once they got their feet under them with that, it started to show results. Yep. But um, here they are, nine and three, and you know they're going to be going to a new quarterback next year. Um, they're likely going to lose some talent at wide receiver based on who can go pro. Um, there's um, some significant talent on defense that has the that um, will graduate, and some other guys that have a, an opportunity to leave. Um, there's a bit of a crossroads in Ann Arbor. I'm I'm really curious to see what the next move is here because clearly changes need to happen. I just don't know what the that next changes i don't think um they're they're gonna drastically up you know change up the defense i think other than one game a year it's been wildly successful but um there there's there's some soul searching going on about 20 minutes from where i'm sitting right now i can tell you that it's weird because while michigan is constantly you know top 15 20 program in college football there's one mile mark. There's one bar that they have to clear. There is literally one bar to which Michigan football um, measures itself, and that's whether or not they could beat Ohio State. Like, they want to win national championships. They want to win the Big Ten, all that. They know before they could do that, they have to be able to beat Ohio State, and they just have not been able to do that. Uh, ne- you know, next year, I, Ohio State might have to replace a whole, whole lot of dudes. Uh, but they're still going to be really good, so I'll be interested in that. Uh, and then we talked about how it seems like there might be a gap with Penn State. Well, Penn State hasn't won in Ann Arbor under James Franklin, and that's where that game's happening next year. Um, so I, that that will be very, very interesting to me. Uh, you know, see how that game goes. It's for Penn State. It's heading into a bye uh, before its toughest three-game stretch of the year. So neither here nor there. And then for, as for Ohio State, you know, there's not much else we can really say. They're just they're just that good. And are, are, they, are they your number one team in the country, or are you still an LSU person? No, I think um, just based on who they've beaten and how they've beaten them, it's really tough for me to go against Ohio State right now. Yeah. Uh, I think LSU is really, really good, um, and I wouldn't be shocked to see either one of them be number one either on Tuesday or after um, plausible wins for both of them in conference championship games next week. Um, but I think on the whole um, – it's, it's the, the age-old question, resume versus performance. I think Ohio State's resume, as far as who they've beaten, is good enough. And then you add in how they've done it. Um, they they haven't had a team come with, you know other than Penn State, come with an 11 of them. I think 24 is the next closest um, without doing the math and remembering how much they won by yesterday. Um, and they've beaten some good teams. You know We already talked about Wisconsin, Penn State, obviously. Um, Michigan, Cincinnati's a solid team as well. Um, but they just haven't really showed any chink in the armor as far other than the turnovers they had against Penn state. Um, they've just been utterly dominant, um, over 12 weeks. 
yeah, it's uh, it, it's and this is a year where you, you do not want to be the number one, number two team. You want to be number one because the difference between having to play Utah or Oklahoma, uh, you know, whoever ends up in that spot is gigantic compared to having to play uh, Clemson, which. You know, it's kind of just gone about its business, but it's still just been dominating teams this year. You know, they, in their own right, have a case for being the number one team in the country. So, would not be surprised if we see a pair of really weird games with the, uh, you know, LSU, Georgia, and Ohio State, Wisconsin, with both of those better teams trying to, you know, really throwing caution to the wind and trying to get style points. But it'll be fun, uh, just like the, for the most part this regular season for Penn State. Thank you. God, if we ran really long on this one, do we we need to talk about Michigan football last, Matt. That, that's that's our uh, that is our New Year's resolution in the event that uh, this pod still exists next year, which I have to imagine it will. Uh, yeah, but it, I have no problem going with a half an hour special edition. Penn State fans make fun of Michigan football podcast. That's <laughs> I am extremely here for that. If it's something we want to try in the new year, well, if only we had a. You know, our parent site was an Ohio State site that relishes the opportunity to, you know, prod Michigan to hell and back. But we could do a whole series where we invite the, you know, some of those guys on and just have a great old time. <laughs> we will, we will certainly look into that. But for now, thank you very much for listening to this edition uh, of Roar Lions Radio. Uh, please make sure you're heading on to our various podcasting platforms, subscribing, uh, leaving us reviews where you can, all that stuff that helps us. Bump up those various charts so people who don't listen to our podcast can get exposed to it. Uh, Make sure you're reading the site, supporting the site, following us on all of our various social media channels. And, of course, make sure you're buying shirts. uh, Knock on – there's some wood, knock on wood, that Penn State ends up going to and winning the Rose Bowl so we can end up doing something uh, fun with that. But regardless, we'll – you know, hopefully we'll have some stuff coming for you in the future. Uh, But if not, keep buying the shirts. They're great anyway. You're great too. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. For my co-host Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.